Hello and welcome to episode 1 of Pakistanomy, a podcast that will focus on Pakistan's economy, its challenges and opportunities and the path ahead. I'm Uzair Yunus uh, from Washington DC and joining me today is Khurram Hussain. Khurram is business editor at Dawn and is someone who has a keen eye on Pakistan's economy. His weekly column in Dawn, published every Thursday, is a must-read to understand what's going on with the economy. And I'm really excited that he's here for episode one uh, of this podcast. And I'm really excited about this conversation as well. Khurram, thank you for joining us on Pakistanomy. How are you and how are things in Karachi? Gas is back on? Uh, uh, well, it's a pleasure to uh, be on your podcast. And uh, things are as usual in Karachi. Gas uh, remains in short supply. And uh, the provincial government and the federal government continue to wrangle over uh, allocation of issues and uh, whatnot. But other, other than that, we're in the middle of a cold wave and uh, we're enjoying the nice cold weather. Well, that's great. Uh, I was just there and as I was there, the gas shortage started and today I was seeing that it may be, uh, the shortage may double coming into 2020 winter. So hopefully they have some plans for that. But let's just jump in um, and we'll start with 2019 and gather your thoughts on the year that just went by. Obviously, growth declined and Pakistan went into yet another IMF program. Um, what do you look at uh, as being some key events in 2019 in terms of Pakistan's economy um, that, that just went by? Uh, well, 2019 was a packed year uh, for those who follow the economy in Pakistan. I'd say that the year opened with Pakistan's uh, brand new government uh, in deep in talks with the IMF and those talks sort of floundering. Um, along the way, they had to plug uh, their deficits uh, through emergency measures. There was an outreach to the Gulf countries, to China, for emergency loans. Something like $6 billion or so dollars uh, were provided. But if you remember, Buzair, in those days, Pakistan was running a current account deficit of $1 billion a month, just about, approximately. Uh, which means six billion dollars barely bought in six months, and because those six billion came in one billion a month at a time, uh, the in fact it was less than six; it was more like five. Uh, I think the first uh, disbursements, if I remember correctly, had begun in November the year before. Uh, so v- very quickly that money was gone, and by uh, later in January the government was talking about uh, a mini budget, uh, which meant more revenue measures, and. Uh, what was supposed to be a budget designed or a set of measures designed to mobilize additional revenue to plug the fiscal deficit, in fact, turned into what the finance minister described as a package of incentives for business and industry, uh, which showed the lobbying success that uh, big business and industrial houses uh, managed to score uh, in getting the government to change its mind about mobilizing, you know, from going from mobilizing revenue to going towards growth and, uh, and using tax measures and incentives to, uh, to kickstart the economy instead. Um, the big event, uh, the biggest event would have been the departure of Asad Umar and uh, the replacement of him by Dr. Hafiz Sheikh. Uh, and this was symbolic and uh, meaningful and substantive. Uh, and, I mean, this was an event that operated at all levels. Uh, it was symbolic because uh, for almost eight years, Asad Omar had been the face of the PTI's economic management. Uh, there were moments during the pre- preceding eight years when the PTI's rhetoric more or less boiled down to 
them saying put uh, vote for us, put us in charge of the government, and we will put Asadumar in the finance ministry, and he will solve the. Yeah, he was the. The opening batsman, so to speak, is what Prime Minister Khan, then opposition leader Khan, used to call him. Yes, uh, more or less the opening batsman is uh, how the rhetoric went. Uh, Uzair, I'm not sure if you can hear me. I can, loud and clear. Okay. Uh, the opening batsman is how it was described. And uh, he, I mean, more or less as if he is the, the uh, you know, the solution himself. He was the person who had drafted the white paper on the economy in the 2013 elections. Um, if you remember back then, I had written about that white paper in an article called uh, Robin Hood Economics, in which I had basically said that this is pie-in-the-sky stuff. Uh, these, uh, these, this sounds like great rhetoric, but it's uh, not something that uh, can possibly be implemented. And the kind of criticism that was directed at me was, uh, give them a chance at least. You're uh, disqualifying them before even giving them a chance. Uh, well, they had their chance, right? And it didn't last eight months. Um, and then uh, in the, the 2018 election, the run-up to it, Assad was a, a principal member of the team that drafted the PTI's manifesto uh, as well. So he was the economic uh, man behind the party. And his departure and replacement, very specifically, by Hafiz Sheikh, who is in fact the oldest, the face of the oldest of old Pakistans, perhaps. Uh, he had been uh, a provincial finance. He had served under Pervez Musharraf in various capacities. He had mm-hmm. been the provincial finance minister for the uh, for the government of Sin. He had been privatization minister, um, and it was under him that many of the big uh, signature privatizations of the Pervez Musharraf era uh, took place. Um, so his and then uh, he was the finance minister for the PPP government as well. Uh, so when he was brought in, it was as, it was at least to those of us who follow the economy uh, the moment which told us that uh, the PTI's rhetoric of change has hit a brick wall and they are not going to be moving forward with it uh, anymore. Um, Again, I wrote this at the time, at that point in time. Again, I was criticized saying that, well, you know, you're uh, 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 being a bit premature and calling judgment. Give them a chance. Let's see how things go. Uh, Hafiz Sheikh is not as important as Imran Khan. He's the, the, the guy overseeing the whole thing and he will bring about the change even with old faces. Um, well, after the arrival of Hafiz Sheikh, the next big event was Pakistan's accession to an IMF program. And uh, that IMF program, uh, the elements of which had already been put in place with the budget of uh, June 2019 uh, for the fiscal year 2020, um, that uh, elements of that program had already been revealed in that budget. And uh, the central core part of the whole program was a massive, a massive jump in the revenue target. In fact, it was a, a, a jump so large. They had collected 4 trillion rupees worth of revenue, FPR revenue, in that year. Um, in the budget, they announced that they will aim to collect 5.5 trillion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This was, I mean, no other government in the past has announced a revenue uh, uh, target so ambitious in the past. And again, when we pointed this out, it said, well, this sounds like pie in the sky sort of stuff. We were told, well, give them a chance. You know, they haven't even begun yet. This is a new government. Uh, they Perhaps they can succeed where everybody else failed. Um, 
So when the IMF program came out, we all saw that it's largely built around uh, the revenue target. There's not much of a structural reform agenda in it. Um, and whatever emphasis there is on structural reforms is uh, very gentle. It's very minimal. Um, so basically the whole game in the, in the fiscal year that opened in uh, July 2019 was going to be about revenue. And, so uh, let, let me let me pause right there, um, and we'll jump into the tax revenue side of the conversation just a bit. Um, you know, you were writing about pie in the sky stuff, the rhetoric um, not being something that can be executed upon, and clearly early on in 2019, as you just described, um, that sort of fell apart. Um, my view on this was always that you know it was shocking at the very least to see a party that had been in opposition, a party that claimed to be a reform voice, to not have a more robust plan on what to do with the economy, especially when folks like yourself, folks like Shakib Shirani and others, had written about um, what was coming down the uh, down the year in 2018 and 2019. And the lack of planning, at least for me, was just astounding. Um, but, you know, my, my question to you is, was it their fault? Um, they claimed that, you know, the, uh, the rhetoric, loot ke chale gaye, corrupt, uh, rulers, Zardari and Nawaz are to blame for this. Was this the rhetoric that they took too seriously and did not then plan about, uh, what the real solutions were? Or was it something else? Right. Uh, there, I always felt that the criticism that they did not have a plan was a bit unfair. Uh, no government really comes in with a plan uh, as such. I mean, they have a certain, uh, uh, you know, each political party has its own uh, unique, uh, if, if we might call it, let's say, a vision. Uh, but rarely ever do we find governments coming in with a plan. And almost always, all governments begin their career in Pakistan by first going to the IMF. And this has been a pattern since 1988. Uh, so in that sense, there was nothing unusual, number one. Number two, uh, yes, this government did inherit uh, uh, an extremely dire uh, economic situation. One that if it had been left uh, to its own devices, would have taken the country towards a balance of payments crisis. Um, I do maintain we were not at that point in time in the middle of a crisis, but, you know, semantic debates aside, uh, the situation was extremely dire. There was no option other than to go to the IMF at that point in time. What went wrong, however, and where this government does bear responsibility, is, uh, first of all, in the extreme delay that they took in coming to terms with the fact that uh, the very crisis they are talking about requires extreme uh, measures, that is, that is going to, or that are going to, uh, eat away at their own popularity. Because those measures are going to, uh, fuel inflation. They are going to, uh, stymie growth. They will, uh, push people into poverty. They will, uh, erode employment. Um, and, uh, they will lead to large scale slowdowns in, uh, and, and, and in there, do you, do you believe that, at least my view on that was that was counterintuitive, right? A new government that's coming in with what it calls a strong mandate has a lot of political room to make these tough choices, right? So the fact that those choices were not made early on when in fact you could point to the previous administration and say this is their fault would have been the ideal um, strategy for a new government, especially a government that had a very strong rhetoric about what the ills of the past administrations were. So do you agree with the fact that 
that was a bit surprising that they took so much time to make what were politically costly decisions, but the political cost of those decisions early on in the tenure would have been far less than what it was later on as 2019 uh, came about. Well, it was surprising uh, in one sense uh, that they did not see and acknowledge the reality that the rest of us could see very, very clearly. What was not surprising, what was not surprising, however, for them, is that they took their own rhetoric far more seriously than the British government. Imran Khan came into uh, power as Prime Minister uh, quite literally thinking that he is the solution. He did not, he, he had this in his mind that he is not going coming with a solution, but he himself is the solution. And if you listen to the container speeches that he gave during the days of the, the, the Dharana and the sitting demonstrations outside Parliament in 2014, uh, repeatedly he would invoke this too, that uh, the problem in Pakistan is not with the institutions, it's not with the structure, it's not with the history, it's uh, basically that we have the wrong guy at the top. And when you get the right guy at the top, the problems will automatically begin to address themselves and rectify. For example, we actually believe uh, that uh, now that he is in power, he will issue a personal decision to oversee Pakistan to donate money to Pakistan to help flood uh, its current account deficit, and money will pour in, in such huge quantities that Pakistan's uh, external sector deficit, uh, which has become an $80 billion uh, in, the, in the year that has just closed, uh, would be plugged automatically. I mean, in those days, when he issued that televised decree for donations, uh, uh, the current account deficit was touching $2 billion a month. Uh, and he actually believed he actually believes that now that he is in power and he is so popular and people believe in him, that he will issue an appeal to people in the country to come forward and pay their taxes and that improves people are going to step forward and start getting themselves registered and start paying their taxes and as a result our fiscal deficit will be plugged. It's these beliefs that we hung on to for the longest time. Um, and we see that, for example, in the televised decree that we put out for overseas Pakistan to contribute to the camp fund. Yeah, that was when about October, I think, uh, December, October. That the fees went out at exactly the same time as the finance minister, Asadova, had gone to Bali to open negotiations with the IMF. So while the finance minister is talking to the IMF, the prime minister is at home issuing televised appeals to overseas Pakistan to do it. Um, and we see it again when the Pakistan Bajao certificates or Pakistan Banao certificates uh, bonds that they want to float came about sometime in, I think that was Jan 2019. So a few months later, he was still holding on to this idea that somehow, uh, if uh, the fee for donations didn't work, uh, then maybe if you float bonds and we offer overseas Pakistan in return and an asset uh, to hold on to. Yeah, yeah, those certificates, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because they didn't share a lot of data after the fact in terms of how much money came in through those certificates and what the process was. And I remember being in DC and looking at that scheme and being like, you really can't raise these funds, at least in the United States, without being slapped on the wrist by the SEC because there is a whole process that needs to be followed by a sovereign nation before it floats bonds and raises money from diaspora or other bond market sources. So I think that was also indicative of the fact that, you know, it was it was a gut reaction that was not properly thought out and, and what needed to be done. And the targets were unclear um, as well when it came to that. Um, 
let let's go back to the to the tax question you raised earlier on and and you know i have maintained i'm guessing you will agree with that as well is that the achilles heel of the entire imf program is the tax target right so the data i have looked at for example suggests that over the last decade or so in the ppp administration and then the pmln administration tax revenue has grown by about 15 to 16% year on year um and this year as well so far for the first half of fiscal year 19 we're seeing the same trend albeit the fact is that it's a higher inflation environment so the real growth of tax revenue is lower than what it was perhaps in the nawaz league era um but it, the the shortfall already is about 300 billion rupees um and don i believe last week had an editorial about it as well there being issues between the federal board of revenue and the ministry of finance in terms of who was responsible for this and how the shortfall uh, can be plugged in um do you think this tax target will be met um and i'm guessing the answer is no and if the answer is no then how will pakistan deal with the fact that it will fall short of a tax revenue target set by the imf in the next 6 months and how does the country deal with it is it a mini budget more indirect tax revenues uh and tax measures or what's the path ahead for that but first of all i don't think the 5.5 trillion uh, or 5.5 times trillion rupee target is going to be met and i think that much is clear because even in the first review of the imf committee after the first review they had divided that down So and, and so, sorry to pause right here Karam if you could just come a bit closer to the mic that would be great So I don't think the 5.55 trillion rupee tax target that was uh, set in the budget is going to be met uh, and that much is clear because in the first review of the IMF program that target is already been divided out uh, so that's a public acknowledgement from the government and from the IMF that the original target that had been is not going to be met Now the question is will they even be able to meet the, the, the downward divided target? And the state bank has given us a hint uh, in that in the first quarterly report, uh, which is looking at the month July to September, in which it said, well, you know, we managed to squeeze out uh, some incremental revenue in the first quarter. Uh, we applaud you for that, uh, but in their own diplomatic style, uh, they, uh, they 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 point out. that uh, much of this has come from uh, uh, measures such as a hike in the price of fuel, a hike in the price of uh, electricity, uh, along with uh, the hike in the rate of sales tax that little not be on the matter. A very large chunk, almost 36% of that PRRB has come from uh, measures such as these. Uh, alongside that, an increase in the sales tax rate. So what We are seeing it an intensification of existing tax collection measures, uh, and through that we've been able to meet the 16% uh, growth that uh, that that we mentioned. And the state bank specifically points out that in the nine months left in the fiscal year, from September till uh, the end of June, um, they are going to have to work a lot harder to meet even the downward divide target that was set. So. I mean, this is not no longer me saying this. It's no longer me saying that this high and this high stuff that we see. Uh, this is the state bank having its voice to the to the world. So yes, I think as we move forward between now and June, there are clearly uh, tensions that are now beginning to come uh, around the whole issue of tax, because sadly, that's the single most important item on the menu when you go about. It. 
So we modeled seeing the financial advisor uh, and uh, go uh, go to the PR and in a diplomatic way sort of urge them to do more and to uh, focus more on increasing revenues without uh, you know overburdening existing taxpayers. And, uh, because you know the economy is slowing down, large scale manufacturing is shutting down. There's a hearing of temporary factory closures being announced uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, I believe Suzuki just announced this week, right, that they will have increased shutdowns for their factory yeah. plant because the demand for the auto has collapsed. The, uh, the automobile sector is in deep crisis, and uh, pretty much all the major automakers, from the factors to automobiles, uh, announced the. Uh, Containment of production, shut down the plant and, uh, and operations. Temporary, even if temporary, but uh, even though temporary shutdowns are long enough in duration. But the, the point being that in an environment such as this, it's very, very difficult for them to burden uh, manufacturers and, and industries for the revenue of that. This is something, you know, that's something that they're rightfully very, very good on. Uh, so the next thing the financial advisor asked their PR, where's your vision for the cost? Because earlier the government had approved uh, uh, a plan for a reform of the SDR, uh, which met with stiff opposition from within the SDR itself, as all the uh, uh, you know the officer traders of the SDR came together and said we were not consulted, but the decision was made or not. And the prime minister came into that question. He met with the with the SDR officers and said, fine, you know, you guys come up with a vision and tell me uh, what what you want. It's been well over, I think, a month, uh, almost two months since that meeting, and, uh, and what the financial advisor was telling the officers of the FDR was, there's that vision. You guys promised us that you had uh, uh, some idea somehow to reform the FDR, broaden the tax base. Where is it? I haven't seen anything. So some of these tensions are already beginning to, uh, to bubble up to the surface. And I think as time goes on, and uh, the nasty political choices are hoisted onto the government, um, you know, the event of a failure to meet uh, the, the very ambitious revenue target. Uh, these tensions are likely to until uh, a, a point comes when, um, you know, the government starts contemplating major changes, uh, such as taking the initiative for FDR reform and starting decisions back into their hands, uh, or announcing cash revenue measures in uh, a new budget. And that could be happening, you know, as early as February, perhaps. Uh, given the pace at which uh, these uh, shortfalls are mounting, and uh, the very little amount of time left is now in the closing of the Yeah, my sense of it was, and I actually got this wrong, um, was that there would be a mini-budget before the end of 2019, and I was proven wrong, but the shortfall continues to mount. So, you know, for the average listener tuning in here, um, would it be correct to say that in 2020, um, as the year progresses and the shortfalls pile up, that more indirect tax measures that impact those that are already paying taxes would uh, mount? And just, you know, one of the things I want to clarify, a lot of people in Pakistan, when I speak to them at least, and maybe you hear the same thing, is that Pakistanis don't pay taxes and there are only 2 million tax filers in the country and that number is passed around as being evidence that Pakistanis don't pay taxes, whereas my view always has been that Pakistan has a regressive taxation system and everyone who buys petrol or everyone who uses a SIM card or uses a phone is actually a taxpayer. It's just that those 
big lobbies that are supposed to contribute a larger chunk of the tax revenues in this country do not really do that. Um, so my, based on what you just said, my sense is that, you know, as 2020 progresses, more indirect tax measures that are inflationary and reduce the purchasing power of the average citizen are coming up and it will hurt the average citizen a lot more. Uh, absolutely. I think whatever decisions they have to make, whether it's a high the data for this. Look, I mean, if they make a decision to go for a mini budget, uh, in the face of mounting or growing, uh, maybe short uh, then they have to rely on what we might call high elastic tax health in order to beat the problem, right? Uh, they, you can't propose big year, uh, a sort of a long-term or even medium-term vision to then flood, uh, a shortfall that needs to be flooded in a matter of months. Uh, so they will have to be sought to highly plastic, meaning those those kind of taxes that, that yield revenue very quickly. Uh, so what are those measures? I mean, well, petrol, uh, taxes on petrol, telecom services, and electricity and natural gas uh, are all very elastic. We increase the rate today, from tomorrow we start getting, uh, we start getting more taxes. Uh, an increase in the sales tax rate also tends to be more elastic. So these are the kind of revenue heads that they are likely to fall upon. Uh, of course, we're looking ahead, so uh, it could be wrong. Uh, you know, we should always hold out that possibility. But nevertheless, common sense suggests that they will fall onto uh, very elastic heads. And those elastic heads have the unfortunate consequence of increasing the burden on the common citizens. So I agree with you that yes, the tax structure in Pakistan is in fact highly regressive. Despite the fact that on the on the face of it we don't see uh, large numbers of tax returns being filed, uh, that's because of, a, of an unusually large reliance on indirect taxes. Uh, the largest head in our in our, uh, uh, revenue collecting connection, you know, uh, uh, apparatus is the sales tax. Uh, that's a very uh, that's a highly regressive tax. So. That, that's a politically a very difficult choice for them to make at this point in time, especially at a time when they are counting that, look, we are moving towards stability, stabilization is returning, soon we move towards growth. At that point, uh, if they come out with a mini budget that increases the tax burden on the poor, that increases the tax burden on compliance taxpayers, um, you know, there's going to be a bit of a backlash. That's what happened to all this talk about stability and return. What happened to, uh, uh about to move towards growth? Yeah, so that that's the interesting thing uh, I gather from your comments is Khuram Hussain is saying there's more pain ahead, while the government is saying 2020, if I recall correctly, the Prime Minister said, is when growth restores, um, although that flies flat in the face of the World Bank's report that just came out today, where they reduced the economic projection. Um, and what the state bank is saying as well is like, you know, we were counting on the agricultural sector and guess what? The agricultural sector is not doing as well as we anticipated. So let's, let's hold our horses there. Um, and you know, I, I'm just putting on the hat of the Insafian and the government supporter and saying, well, you know, 2019, the current account deficit was a big problem and look, we solved it. The media was up in arms about the stock market collapsing and look where the stock market is right now. And so all of this stuff that Puram Hussain is saying is just doomsday projection. And I can actually hear the keyboard warriors and the trolls coming after you on Twitter as they listen to this, um, if they do. So, you know, how do you respond to that when they say we've turned things around and things are going to be better and you're just 
doing doomsday projections here. Well, look, I was, when I was doing these doomsday projections two years ago under the CMNN government, and I was telling that government that uh, this, this uh, uh, you know, short-lived period of growth that you are presiding over is going to end in a crash, uh, these same keyboard warriors were calling me. Uh, and I can in fact see some names that back then were like, you know, right on. Uh, and today, they're saying, well, give them a chance. Uh, we are giving them a chance, obviously. You don't have a choice, right? Uh, they're in power and uh, they will implement their decision uh, accordingly. Uh, the thing is, these are not doomsday predictions. If you look at Pakistan's history, you'll find that we have been through this multiple times. Uh, look, for instance, at the current account deficit in the years from So we've seen this before, and the, the analogy I use is like Pakistan's economy or Pakistan in general, both politically and economically, is like watching the movie Groundhog Day. It's a repeat of the same situation time and time again. And, you know, I was in Karachi and I drove by the port and I completely agree with you that demand compression was evident. The port was pretty much empty. Um, which is an indicator of how bad things are in terms of the growth engine of the economy and how it's been strangulated primarily to control the current account deficit, which was necessary at that point in time. And I also agree with you that, you know, whatever government had come in play, they would have done the same measures because that's the cookie cutter approach and it was necessary at that point in time. Um, maybe the Nawaz League or the People's Party would have gone to the IMF a bit faster than what the PTI did, but that's just the timeline. Uh, difference. Um, but, you know, the other thing I sort of look at the economy and the groundhog day is that that program is executed 
um, you know, the first step of it, at least to normalize things is executed pretty effectively, right? And we're seeing that already in terms of the current account deficit figures, etc. Um, it's what comes after. And that's where historically the policymakers across the board, whether military or civilian, have failed um, to play a key role. So my question to you is, do you see a scope for meaningful structural reforms that result in sustainable growth coming back in the medium term? Or do you see the country sort of muddling along through another IMF program and then elections and then maybe we go back to the IMF again uh, in one way, shape or form? Well, let's start with a little bit. The key here is structural reform. Um, anything that, uh, in the absence of structural reform, all the stabilization measures you need is nothing. There's just a short-term value of it. Uh, the economic equivalent of Panadol. Uh, it's not going to solve the problem, it's just going to simply go away. Only for it to be a failure without it. This is a roller coaster that's been riding for a quarter of a century now, more than a quarter of a century. So, the key is in the structural reform and finding a way to reform uh, the relationship with the state-owned enterprises, let us be privatization or let us be something else. Uh, to broaden the tax base, to broaden the export base, to raise and mix uh, productivity in the economy, uh, in the absence of these things that we have. Now, you ask uh, uh, what is the likelihood that uh, the structural reforms may occur. One of the essential ingredients for structural reforms to take place is some amount of political stability and some amount of consensus within the political system, uh, within politics. So, for example, if you look at the privatizations that we sort of launched in the middle of the 2000s, uh, we managed to get the banks privatized, but when we moved beyond that to the more bread and butter industries like the CEO or CIA or CSO, uh, we met stiff opposition from within his own government, from the opposition, from who he stayed for. And he was unable to actually make that happen. Um, likewise, the, the PDP government uh, tried to bring about what they call a reform GST, uh, a Rotarian attack, uh, and the old coalition partners abandoned them in Parliament and voted against that uh, bill, which collapsed as a result. That important reform measure never happened. Uh, the PMLN government tried to revive the privatization program, especially the CIA, and failed spectacularly for the proposition that 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 they did not encounter Now, the extent to which a government can at least command or build some kind of a consensus behind the the, the structural reform direction that it takes uh, is going to determine whether or not it's going to be successful or not. Now, this government is number one. Um, Standing on a very thin majority in Parliament, so the thinnest majority that we have seen since 2002. Yeah, uh, I think he's got maybe three more votes than what Jamali did under the yeah, Musharraf era. Basically, and that was the thinnest majority in get. That was a majority of one seat in 2000. So, and number two, they don't even have a majority in the Senate, which means legislation is very difficult for them to pass unless the legislation happens to have a very powerful imperative behind it, you know, such as the, what we just did with the extension of the amendments of the Army Act. And so um, we need more 20 minute pieces of legislation where things are just eyes are, eyes are spoken out loud and the nose are muted and we just push it through? Well, the, the problem with structural reforms is that you encounter below the line resistance. It's not just within Parliament. So when you move towards implementing a value added tax, the, 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 the uh, 
the original uh, resistance came from the street, from the traders uh, and the trader community. Likewise, when just now when they tried to move with certain documentation measures back in July, the opposition came from the traders, and the traders announced nationwide uh, strikes that were quite successful, considering how fractious and uh, disunited this community is. The fact that they were able to, for even one day, and in another case, two days, shut down the, uh, you know, the trading economy of the country. What and on the trader side, I think the most recent round was also, very, at least for me, very interesting when um, Maulana Fazlur Rahman was headed to Islamabad and the trader said, we're going to join him and we're going yeah. to start going on strike. And lo and behold, very quickly, Dr. Sheikh and others met the trading community and a deal was struck to extend the the proposals that the government was pushing for bringing them into the tax net. So, uh, uh, you know, that another example of how quickly they're able to capitalize on political uh, winds shifting in Islamabad and getting their piece of the pie um, and pushing back reform. Absolutely. I mean, this is what happens when you have a, a highly uh, a disunited or, a, a, you know, a, a government sort of struggling for its uh, majority, for its rich, for its legitimacy. Um, what happens is that if there's any kind of disturbance on the street, uh, on the ground level, the political parties swoop in on it to make political sunshine uh, out of the whole uh, thing. Very quickly to throw their lot in, they're very quick to throw their lot in with, uh, with, the, with the agitators, and uh, uh, the, the politicians find that they can very quickly also put in their own sales and beef uh, up their own opposition. The same thing happens in the PMLN strike move to privatize CIA. All the opposition parties suddenly ganged up with the, the, the labor union uh, and said, well, we're with them. And that whole thing ended in an ignominious compromise. So the PMLN uh, government had to actually promise that they would never. Uh, I mean, practically passed the law saying that CIA is never going to be privatized. And uh, that all those people who had been fat are going to be reinstated. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and there ended that matter. That was a, key, a very key reform measures uh, in that IMF program. So, you know, structural reforms in order to implement those, that's a function of uh, how much political capital you can bring to the table. And at the moment, this government uh, has hardly any meaningful uh, political capital. Uh, so they're going to have to work very hard at uh, stitching the, the, the political culture of the country back together again. Uh, getting the opposition parties to come on board. Learning to work with uh, other parties, even as you vilify their leadership, even as you even as you go after them in an aggressive accountability, right? That's a very very tough act uh, to pull off. It's a very uh, delicate uh, and a political uh, high wire act. Uh, you take a great deal of skill, and you know, frankly speaking, political skill is something that is uh, uh, manifestly absent in this country. Yeah, I, I think we can agree on that. Um, we're coming at the close of our podcast, and one of the goals, at least for me with this podcast, is to, you know, engage with audiences and indulge in deep economic debates, which is like what we've done right now. And one of the things I've always wondered about, you mentioned that, you know, the resistance to reforms comes from the grassroots and it's bottoms up, not just political. Um, and my view, at least, has been that an engaged uh, society that looks at what the economy and the reforms needed for the economy are, maybe perhaps over the medium term, can lead to more political space for these difficult choices to be made. Um, 
and you know in mainstream media at least in pakistan particularly television media you don't spend or you don't see television shows spending 40 45 minutes on really bread and butter economic issues although that's what affects everyone in this country of 220 million people so i just wanted to get a sense from you if you know for listeners what would you recommend for them in terms of how do they stay engaged how do they learn more about the economy that goes beyond just uh, look the current account deficit is in surplus now and we're about to turn around how do they cut through the noise and better understand how economic policy is made in the country and how it affects them on a day-to-day basis and how can they push for change well there's one thing that they need to do before anything else uh, and that is uh, they need to realize that the economy cannot be dented in isolation from everything else uh, if the economy is a part of your society it's a part of your polity uh, all these things are integrated so if your politics is in tumult your economic policy is not going to be uh, effective stay on the surface uh maybe up to a very different uh and likewise if there are deeply uh antagonistic strains that uh, uh you know uh, uh or, or deep distrust of the state uh has been uh, fed to uh, society uh, it's going to be very hard to then turn that around and ask the citizens to start trusting the government as it takes to um i think this government has come to power on the back of uh rhetoric that can only be described as toxic and divisive. Uh they have fueled they have talked they have asked citizens in the past to not pay their taxes, to not pay their electricity bills. Uh they have told them that this country is uh is rotten to the core, that their institutions are all corrupt. Um the kind of rhetoric that they used while they were in opposition uh fueled and and increased the gulf between the citizens and and and, and, and the ruling institutions. Uh, on the one hand, and on the other, it's uh, divisive because they have vilified the opposition to such an extreme um, that even military dictators, uh, you know, were, were reluctant to take things to the kind of extreme that they are taking. Except perhaps uh, in the late 70s, when one military dictator had to be hanged for that. Um, you know, to some extent, this was. Cheered on by their own followers uh, as examples of uh, the strong uh, leadership that Pakistan has always needed. You know the sort of journey for strong man rule, uh, but it's clearly run its uh, course, and uh, they have now learned they cannot get things done uh, in the kind of atmosphere that has been created as it was. So they need to now drain this swamp. Uh, they need to uh, learn to work with uh, the others with whom they sit in power. Uh, and they need to start climbing down from the from the rhetoric of uh, uh, you know abuse and hate that they directed towards the state, uh, and start urging people uh, to to learn to trust the, the government and its institutions again. But for that to happen, uh, sadly enough, you know, having created this gulf between the citizens and the state, it has now become their job to bridge that gulf now that they are in power. Uh, because without bridging that gulf, they can't advance. Uh, uh, Any of the structural reform measures that they need to, they can't, uh, uh, and, and they will. It will amplify the uh, kind of unpopularity that stabilization uh, of the economy earns for them. Uh, so that's now become their task. And if they don't succeed in this, then there's no sense in talking about, uh, you know, uh, fancy economic policies and, and, and uh, uh, programs uh, in the future. Because in the absence of Uh, a political will uh, and a consensus, and in the absence of traction on the ground, uh, 
no program is really going to be yeah, no, I think that's an important point. And I think when they were in opposition, they vilified the term or used the term mukmuka in a derogatory way, saying the People's Party and the Nawaz League are two sides of the same coin. And largely, you know, in some ways, in terms of elite interests and how they protect each other, that was true. But uh, in a parliamentary democracy, I think it's important that there is some level of mukmuka, which is consensus and agreement on how they're going to proceed um, and continue policy, because otherwise, especially in a diverse society like Pakistan, which is not a two-party system, you will continue to reset the clock. And I think that's a very important point for uh, people to pay attention to and agree that some level of consensus is badly needed, uh, especially when it comes to economic policy making, because it is a long path ahead for reforms and it cannot be done by one party in five years. It's almost like the rot is 40 years deep. Um, and to clear that out, um, you need about a decade, decade and a half, two decades worth of long-term policy making and execution to to put the country on the path ahead uh, for a better future. Um, Kodam, thank you for joining. Um, this has been a great conversation. And as I uh, as we wrap this up, one of the things I'm trying to do um, is ask my guests for two to three book recommendations that they would recommend to their audience. Um, so any any recent recommendations that come top of mind to you that people should buy and, and read? On Pakistan's economy? Uh, either or. It can be fiction, non-fiction, Pakistan's economy, other issues, uh, whatever you think has been something interesting you've read recently that people should pick up and well, read. You know, when I try to read, uh, when I read books, I try to read stuff that takes me away from the substance of my work. Uh, because, uh, you know, being so uh, far into the weeds, uh, it gets a bit much. Uh, so for me, reading is a bit of an escapist. Uh, activity. So I read up on my World War One history. I really enjoyed finishing up uh, uh, the Sleepwalkers, a book about the origins of the World War One, uh, which resonates very deeply with how uh, events are shaping up today. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the rise and fall of the dinosaurs. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would. Uh, uh, I, I, I enjoy reading the uh, material that is unconnected with my work. Yeah, I've read The Sleepwalkers and The uh, Ends of the World and The Fall of the Dinosaurs, and they're all excellent, excellent books, especially Sleepwalkers, just because Sleepwalkers it seems like they're re- repeating history all over again, especially with the Iran crisis that thankfully did not, uh, the round ended yesterday, and we're sort of back to the proxy war status quo. Um, Putram, again, thank you for joining for episode one. Uh, I hope uh, you enjoyed the conversation. I really did and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation with you and have a good rest of the evening in Karachi. Thanks for inviting me and best of luck with this podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye.